Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Let's take in your your Bibles. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. If you have not been with us, if you are new to Center Grove or dropped in today with mom, let me tell you a little bit about what we've been doing. We've been looking at the book of Zechariah in a sermon series that we're calling Your Kingdom Come. And the idea of Zechariah is that Zechariah and Haggai work together as kind of a prophetic team, um, ministering at the time that the people had come back to Jerusalem. They had been released from captivity. They had started to rebuild the city. They had laid a foundation for the temple, for God's house. And then they faced some opposition, and they gave up, grew apathetic in it. Sixteen years passed, and they had done nothing more than lay a foundation, and they had forgotten about the work. And so Haggai's message was to spur them to work. Zechariah's message was about keeping them working and, and finish the task and recognize that God wants to restore you. God wants to, God wants to bring you to a place where you are useful again and God is for you. And um, he's doing that, talking about their particular circumstances through these series of eight visions that God has given him that we've been looking at. But he wants to prepare them for how to live in light of his coming kingdom. And that's what, this is, that's what these messages are about for me and you, is how we can live in light of the kingdom of God. Today, the title of the message that we're looking at in this vision that we'll read in chapter 3, I want us to think for, an idea, for, for a bit about the idea of being and feeling. Of being and of feeling. Those are two different things. Feeling like a thing is a far cry from being a thing, and vice versa, right? We could imagine and think for just a minute, if you have ever known anybody who has had an, an eating disorder in that way, think about someone who is, who is anorexic, and they look at themselves and they feel fat. They feel fat. But when you see them, in reality, they are skinny to an unhealthy degree, right? Maybe you have... Um, Maybe you would think about someone who, um, who struggles with emotional issues and they feel like the situation is hopeless. They feel like there's nowhere to go from here. But in that moment, they're, they're so zeroed in on that feeling that they fail to realize when in actuality, there's a future ahead of them. They just are unable to see that. We live in a society today where feeling is, is worshipped, right? If you feel like a thing... That's what you are. We see it in that gender identity issue. If you feel like a thing, then that's what you are. And, and, and we're, we're told to lean into that as a society. We're told in many places to lean into that idea, to lean into the feeling that you have. <clears throat> and if you are biologically a boy and you feel like a girl, well, then you're really a girl. Feelings are subjective. Being is objective. And as we talk today and we, we think about that in those terms, we recognize and understand that gender is not subjective, that gender is objective. I found this article. I have shared this article with you before, but it's really funny, and so I keep bring, pulling it out. This lady, this is an article from the Daily Mail, you know, the, the British, and, um, and this, it's about a lady from Oslo, Norway. She was 20 years old in 2016 when this was written. Her name is Nano. And Nano believes she's a cat. She's one of those who had identified early on as a cat, you know. 
And the, the, I love this article because whoever wrote the article is, it's a British article, they would say that he's cheeky. You know, he's got the way he, that he writes his article is in, in a cheeky way because he realizes that it's all nonsense. He says, she claims to possess many feline characteristics, including a hatred of water and the ability to communicate simply by meowing. She said, it's also obvious that I'm a cat when I, she said, do you, do you hear me? The cat said, it's also obvious that I am a cat when I start purring and meowing and walking around on four legs and stuff like that. Nano also stresses that like the small four-legged animals, I love this, she loves to sleep in the sink and in the windowsill, although she doesn't comment further on the size of either item. <laughs> One of the main advantages of a cat being a cat, according to Nano, is her heightened sense of hearing. You can hear a lot better than regular people, and you can see much more. She reveals you can focus on things that normal people can't. She even claims to possess night vision. I can see better in the dark than in the daylight. That's no problem, she says. I've been running a lot after animals that can be seen in the shadows. However, she admits that despite her best efforts, she has never managed to catch a mouse. And so... Like this deal, this, no matter what she feels like, no matter what you feel like, there is a big difference between being and feeling. That's the big idea of what we want to talk about today, um, that sometimes our feelings don't match reality. To do that, let's look for a little bit at Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is going to receive um, eight visions over the course of the night of February 15th in 519 B.C. This is the fourth of those visions. We've looked at, there were two in, in, uh, two in chapter 1, one in chapter 2, one in chapter 3. We're on the fourth one today. Let's read chapter 3 in this vision that Zechariah has together, okay? Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree." we look at this, um, look at the elements involved, the symbolism here, the people that are involved, um, imagine this to be like a courtroom scene. That's kind of, kind of what we need to imagine, that Joshua the high priest is standing there as kind of the defendant. And you've got a prosecutor in Satan who comes, and you have a defendant in the angel of the Lord 
standing before God, the judge. And, I, and Zechariah is just, just examining this scene. And so what I want to do today is what we've done in several of these vision messages. Let's start the, the, the first part of this sermon. Let me walk through the, the outline in this way to only talk about what's pertinent for them. To only look at like, as, as Zechariah is seeing this, what does this vision mean for them? Because that's who it's given to. That's who the vision to was those people of that time. Now, it's recorded here for us, and so there is application for us, but I think it's important that we understand the context for them. Then we'll come back at the end and, and get some application for us today and really focus in on that idea of the difference between being and feeling. So let's break down some of the players that are involved in this. And if you're taking notes, I have five points today. I know. Five. You ready? Number one. First, I want you to see the accused. The first element of this is the accused. It's the person who's standing and on trial, and that's Joshua. Now, when we talk about Joshua, we're not talking about Joshua who marched around Jericho. We're not talking about the Joshua from Moses' time, okay? This is Joshua the high priest. Joshua was the high priest when the people left exile in Babylon and they came back to, to Jerusalem Joshua was the one who was the, the high priest, seen as the spiritual leader of the people. That's why he's used in this vision. Now, it's not, it's not important for this vision, but just so that you know, there's another fellow that's used in some of these visions after the exile. His name was Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the governor. And so what you have in those two guys is you have one kind of representing the, like the civic realm of the people, and then you have Joshua here who's representative of the spiritual condition of the people. And so that's why Joshua is the figure of the vision. You'll notice that the passage says that Joshua has on dirty clothes, and as you can imagine, that represents the sinfulness of the people. But this is not necessarily about Joshua's own personal sinfulness. So as we read this, don't, don't take it to be that, that Joshua is the one on trial for something personally that Joshua has done. Joshua is the high priest is representative of all the people. And, and, and when we go back to the idea that these people have sat on that building project, that they have not wanted to rebuild the house of the Lord, the building itself is not the issue. The delay in rebuilding is indicative of a heart problem that the people have. This is the issue, right? Which is why God calls Haggai and Zechariah to speak on the issue. And so what you find in this passage is Zechariah, I mean uh, Joshua, representing the people as a whole, is standing before the angel of the Lord, and verse 3 tells us that he was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now, when you go back to the Old Testament law and you start reading, the high priest was supposed to always be clean in the service of the Lord. So um, outside of the temple, outside of the tabernacle, there would have been a, a laver out there full of water, and it was a place to wash and so what you would have is you would have the priests ministering and serving. Go back to like the tabernacle especially. There was no floor in that tabernacle. It was set up on the dirt. And so the priest would be walking around on the dirt as he was serving in the temple. And so imagine you've got sandals and sweaty feet and that dust keeps coming up, right? And so in the Old Testament law, the priest is encouraged to constantly go back out at particular times and to wash, to remain clean. It's kind of the idea that me and you, if we just kind of set our Christian life on cruise control and we just, we just go 
You know, we every once in a while need to look at our life and recognize as the Holy Spirit convicts us of a thing in our life that we need, where do we stand with him? We need some moments of self-examination to, to, to repent and turn from our sin. Not just say, Lord, it's been a really long time since I've come to you in prayer, and Lord, I'm sure I've done a whole lot of things that have gone against your will, so how about you just forgive me for all of it? I don't know that that's actually true contrition, is it? Because when I've done a thing that's wrong, I feel bad about that thing, right? So the Holy Spirit, if he convicts us about a thing, we should be going to the Lord and asking repentance for that thing. Here's Joshua standing before the Lord, filthy, in these garments that are soiled. He's certainly not doing what the priest should have been doing. The people are not doing what they should have been doing. The Greek word, I mean, the Hebrew word for, for filthy here is the word so. It's pronounced so. And it is the grossest word that you could imagine. When it's describing, it's trying to choose the filthiest, dirtiest word to describe him. In fact, most people would say that he is excrement covered. Merrill Younger said that you could interpret this, that he was standing there in excrement covered clothing. Just human feces all over him. That's the dirty. That's the level of dirty that it's getting you to, right? It's what it's trying to, it's what he's trying, that's the picture that's trying to be painted here. And so for a high priest, this is a real problem. And notice that he's being accused. It says in, in there in verse two, that Satan is there. Uh, Verse one, Satan is standing there to accuse Joshua, to accuse the people And the truth is, is that that's what Satan does. Revelation 12 and verse 10 says that he's the accuser of the brethren. Um, Remember in Job chapter 1, Satan does this same thing. He comes to God and he says, look at Job. Job is, is only faithful to you because you've blessed him so much. But if you took away all those blessings, he wouldn't be faithful to you anymore. He's accusing Job. In that instance, think about that Satan is not locked away in hell. He seems to have access to the throne of God where he is accusing us before him, right? He is our enemy. The very word Satan means adversary. So he's there to oppose Joshua and the people. But the truth is, is that what he's probably saying to God, the way that he's probably accusing God is probably true. If, if the high priest is standing there, excrement covered, when he looks at God and he says, look how dirty he is. Look at how he's, done wrong. Look at how filthy he is. It's not even worth cleaning up. It's not even worth forgiving. Look at how bad he's been. Look at the wrong that he's done. There's a truth to that, right? Satan is there pointing that out, reminding. He's pointing back to the fact that all of us are sinners and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and that is true. And he points to us in that way. If you've ever read... um, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. One of you guys were reading that, I think. And, no, Micah. Yeah, oh, that was me. Yeah, Micah was reading that not long ago. And um, if you've if you've seen that movie, that scene I know is in that little movie from where Edmund has has betrayed Aslan and he's betrayed his his brothers and sisters and and he's helped the White Witch and the White Witch comes to Aslan the Lion, who's representative of Jesus, and she and she says, but he's broken the law. At which point Aslan says. Don't quote the law to me. I was there when it was written. He stands up in Aslan's defense, you see. The way that the witch is there to accuse is what's happening here with Satan. 
what the witch was saying was right. He had broken the law. He had done wrong. So had Joshua. So had the people. So have me and you. And Satan, Satan stands there to accuse us. Warren Wiersbe says that this seemed like an airtight case except for one factor, and that's the grace of God. And so the second part of this is not only the accused, but look it down around verses 4 and 5 where you see the advocate. Our advocate is mentioned. Verse 4 says the angel. If you go back up to verse 1, you learn that this is the angel of the Lord. And you'll remember from our talks about the angel of the Lord, this is representative of Christ. This is not just an angel of the Lord. This is Christ himself. It's one of those pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. And so here's this courtroom scene. God the judge, Satan the prosecuting attorney, Joshua the defendant. And then here's the defense attorney, Jesus Christ, our advocate, who stands on our behalf. See, what he says in verse 4 is, his answer to that, those charges is, remove those filthy garments. Well, well, I'll forgive him. It's a picture of forgiveness. We'll just get rid of those filthy garments. We'll make him clean. That's Jesus' response to this. It's important that the advocate here desires to see us forgiven. It's important that we see that. Jesus stands in our defense. 1 John chapter 2 the first few verses there, John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That would be good. But if anyone does sin, which we're going to, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. Romans 8, chapter, I mean, Romans chapter 8, verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's what Satan's doing here, right? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And he is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's speaking up on our behalf. He is the advocate. I want you to notice something about what's happening here. In this particular passage, God does not stop in verse 4 at just removing the filthy garments. It keeps going in verses 4 and 5, and he talks about, I will clothe you with pure vestments. He's going to give him clean clothes. Zacharias speaks up, notice in verse 5, hey, put a turban on his head, right? And he, and he puts this clean turban on his head. There's this What's happening in that moment is, is this is a great picture of salvation for me and you. Yes, he forgives us. So in our sin, apart from Christ, when we come to the Lord, we've talked about this seemingly a lot lately, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it's just as true now as the hundred times I've said it before this. When, when he saves us, he's not just getting rid of the debt. He's not just taking our sin balance back to zero. He's giving us his righteousness He's putting a credit into our account. He's clothing us with his righteousness. He's, gonna, he's not only going to get rid of the filthy clothes, he's going to put on this picture of putting on um, Christ, of being clothed with Christ. Romans 13 and verse 14 tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We looked at some of these images in Ephesians about the taking off of the old and putting on of Christ. Isaiah 61 and verse 10, the first part of that verse, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. When he forgives us, when we repent and believe, return to him, when forgiveness comes to our life, we don't just lose all of that sin, we gain his righteousness. He imputes to us, he gives to us his righteousness. This is a great picture of this is in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember Adam and Eve's sin? And they feel ashamed in their nakedness before God and they go and they gather leaves. Do you remember that scene? They go and they gather leaves and they stitch those leaves together and they make clothes out of them. Now, pause right there just a second in this story. What's going to happen when those leaves stay off that tree for a while? They're going to get brittle. They're going to tear apart. And those clothes are going to be no good. It might temporarily work for a moment, but it is not sustaining or lasting. I would even say to you, if you have ever picked a tender leaf off of a tree, imagine trying to sew that thing together and it stay. Those tender leaves, they break apart pretty easily. So even before they turn brittle, it's not going to be easy to make clothes out of those things. And those clothes are not going to last. It's not going to be a sustainable way to cover, right? But it's their best attempts. When we recognize our sinfulness before God, some people try to go about their own way of doing things. They try fig leaf clothes. They say, I'm going to get really involved in church. I'm going to get devoted to reading my Bible. I'm going to be a better person. None of those things are the answer. They may make you feel good for a while. They may present some kind of righteousness. There may be an appearance of righteousness. But the, the only way that we have righteousness is through Jesus Christ. Unpause the story. They make all these fig leaf clothes. But God comes and God gives them clothes of skin. Now, the skin's going to wear out too, right? But the, in, in the illustration breaks down here. But the skins are a much more permanent form of clothing for them. And in addition to them being more permanent, those skins, an animal had to die for those skins to clothe them. There was a sacrificial death on their behalf. Jesus on the cross. The sacrificial death for us that gives us righteousness that clothes us in his righteousness. And this is what he does for us. Warren Wiersbe again says that Joshua and his fellow priests in this passage were not put on probation. They were cleansed and they were restored to service. And this happens like immediately when we come to Christ, right? So, you see the accused, you see the advocate. Let's move to the third point, which is verses 6 and 7. God gives him assurance. After God does this, after the angel of the Lord cleanses Joshua and puts clean clothes on him, clothes him in righteousness, he gives him a word of assurance. We know it's assurance because verse 6 tells us that. The angel of the Lord assured Joshua. But verse 7 is the promise that he gives of assurance. Now I want you to notice something about the promise in verse 7. Verse 7 is a conditional promise. Conditional promises from God use the words if and then. If you will do this, then I will do that. It's conditional. Some promises are not conditional. Some promises are unconditional with God. In fact, if you go back up to the forgiveness issue, the forgiveness issue here was unconditional, right? If you go back up to, to, um, go back up to verse 4, you see at the end of that verse, the angel of the Lord said to him, Behold, look, 
I have taken away. Right? Your salvation is not a, a conditional promise. It's an unconditional promise. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are emphatic statements. Whosoever should call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are emphatic statements, right? But when you look at a promise like this, this promise in verse 7 is not about his forgiveness. It's about his usefulness before the Lord. See, he says in, in these verses, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, keep my commandments, if you will, if you will do this, then there are three blessings that will follow. You shall rule my house, have charge of my courts, and have a right of access to those who are standing here. He says, you shall rule my house. You'll have leadership among my people. You will have influence and a place in this community. Right? He says, in terms of usefulness, you will have charge of my courts. You will have authority within the temple. You'll watch over the house of God. You will protect it. You will serve there. There's this issue of authority in that second promise. And you will have access among those who are standing here, those, those other angels that are, that are helping in this process that you see in the earlier verses. He says you'll have access to the, to the presence of God even among angelic beings. There's something here for us, isn't there, that, that when it comes to our usefulness before God, that we need to have an influence in the world in which we're walking, right? That um, if, if they look at your life and they see nothing special, peculiar, or different about it, your testimony holds no weight. It's not useful to the Lord. There's an authority that you and I speak upon, and if we move away from that authority, then we have no reason to say anything, right? This is our standard. This is the authority in which we speak, which allows us to be able to have communion with him in this way and so God wants us to maintain our walk with him so that we can be used by him. Um, he does want to use us. That's, what, that's why he's saying these things to Joshua. He does want to use us for service. He does want to use the nation of Israel again. He, he wants us, he wants to use us. When we repent and we come to him, he wants to use us. And so if you look at Joshua in this moment and you get in his shoes, you might could stand there and you might feel unworthy to serve based on the filthiness of your condition before. But what he says in this moment is, if you will walk with me and you will keep my commandments, then I will use you. I want to use you, right? This is like the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son who leaves and comes back and, Daddy, I'll just live out with the servants, right? And, and he says, no, 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 you're a son. You're my son. You were lost and, you're, and you've returned and you're home and you're my son, there's this place where we can get to a feeling where we are unable to serve him because of our past, but he's assuring Joshua in this moment, I want to serve you. I want you to serve me. Then in verse 8 through 10, let's move to the fourth part of this. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of what's to come, right? What he's telling in these last few verses here for us is the announcement that, of how this will be possible of how he can forgive the filthy and make it clean, of how he can take that one that is unfit for service and use them for service. And it's through Jesus Christ. He's talking to this man who's a priest, and he says in verse 8, you and those like you will be a sign. I will bring, he uses three mixed metaphors, my servant, 
the branch, and then in verse 9, the stone. He's all talking about Jesus, right? He's all talking about Jesus. In terms of this, um, in terms of these words, Jesus was the servant. Um, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, Jesus said that, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom of many. And the servant is the name for Jesus that's used most in the Old Testament. The, 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 the term for Messiah that's used most often in the Old Testament is servant. Jesus was the servant. He was the branch in the sense that he came from that line of David, yielding uh, like a plant, yielding uh, fertile fruit. Uh, Jeremiah 23 would be a place where you would find um, this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king, deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then the stone in verse 9, um, the stone the builders rejected. Uh, this seems to be like a gem stone. It talks about like a, it talks about having seven eyes. Don't, don't, uh, don't get a freaky image in your mind here. Seven is this idea of completeness, and eyes is the idea of knowledge. And so sometimes when you see that idea of seven eyes, you're looking at the idea of complete knowledge. And so in his perfect sovereign plan, God will send the servant, the branch, the stone, Jesus Christ, to what verse 9 says, to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day when he would die on the cross and give his life for us. So, in the time that we've got left, let's take this picture that's given to Zechariah and let's fifthly make some application of this and see what's going on here. When I started this message, I told you that there is a big difference between being and feeling. When you consider what's happened to Joshua and you consider how the Lord does that for us, think for just a moment about how that works for us. Consider it in our relationship with God. In our relationship with God, being is objective. Feeling is subjective. So, for instance, we sit here in this room. You said, David, I have no idea what you mean by that. As we sit here in this room, you are either with Christ, a saved person, on your way to heaven, your relationship is right with him, or you are not. And you are apart from Christ, and you are in your sin, and you are dead in your trespasses, and you are on your way to hell. That is objective. Today, the reality is one of those things is true for every person in this room. But what is subjective is the feeling. A person sitting in this room could be lost and apart from him and have no relationship with Jesus Christ, but you could come into this room and sit here and say, I'm feeling fine. Life's good. No problems. I feel fine. I feel like me and the big guy are okay, right? I've had a lot of people tell me that. They say things like that to me. Oh, me and JC, we're tight, you know. They say these sort of things to me, right? But I have a feeling the longer that we talk that that's their feeling. That's not reality. You could also sit here today and be saved, know the Lord, be in a relationship with him, follow him, all of those things, but you could feel in this moment that the Lord is very distant and far from you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you probably have days where you don't feel saved. Because feeling is subjective, but being is objective. 
consider it, if that's your relationship with God, consider it also from the perspective of Satan. Consider it also in this accused portion that we're dealing with. In my opinion, based on everything that I see in Scripture, Satan loves it when we live in the realm of feelings. Satan loves it when we hang out and we are focused on the realm of, of, of subjective. That's, he loves that with us. Do you know what Satan will do? You will sit in a service like this and you'll hear the gospel presented. You will hear an image of a person who's filthy being forgiven and their life changed and them being useful to the Lord and it being news that's so great, like verse 10 says, you have to share it with your neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. It's, it's a message that you want others to have. You will hear that and Satan will tell you, but you don't need that. Your life's good. You're just fine. There is no need to upset the apple cart and repent of your sins. Just, you know, I mean, you, you kind of feel bad sometimes, right? So that means you're sorry and you're good. That's subjective feeling. He loves that. You know another thing Satan will do? He'll, he'll lie to you in that way and tell you're okay, but sometimes Satan will tell you the truth. Sometimes Satan will say to you, or he'll tell you a version of the truth. Let me say that. He'll say to you a thing like, think about all that you've done. David's right. You're filthy and rotten and no good and lousy. And there's nothing that God can do for you. Do you think, do you think after all you've done, God can save you? Pfft, you're worthless, man. There's no hope for you. He zeroed in on the fact that, yes, you're filthy. He's right about that. Just like Joshua, you're filthy. But to say that it's hopeless and there's nothing that can be done about that, that's a lie. But that's a feeling. Either the feeling of, I'm good, nothing's wrong, or I'm a hopeless case and God can do nothing for me. That is a subjective place where the devil loves for us to hang out, where he's in control of us. Where, where we are not honoring God with our life. We are not repentant. We don't believe. We don't turn to him. What about the Christian that's in the room today? That has been saved, but maybe you think about a time when you lost it on somebody very publicly. Or, um, or maybe there was some kind of public sin. Or maybe there, was, maybe there was something that happened with you that made you bitter. And Satan has told you, he can't use you. He can't use you. That, that uh, unforgiveness that you're holding on to, you're always going to have that. And there's no way that you can hold on to that and serve God. So you're done, bud. That's subjective world of feeling. That's the subjective world. That's what the prodigal son, when he was feeling, when he came home and said, let me just stay out with the servants. Father says, no, 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 no. I'm forgiving you. You're a son. Where's the robe? Where's the ring? Bring the fatty calf. Let's, right? When we come to him, when we come to him in repentance, God forgives us. And Satan loves it when we hang out in that what we feel and that's what we live by. God, on the other hand, does not want us to live in the world of the subjective. God wants us to live in the world of the objective. God wants us to focus in on the being, not on the feeling on the being. So for instance, when we stand before God, 
filthy as all get out like Joshua. Do you know what God wants us to feel? He doesn't lie to us. The Holy Spirit doesn't lie to us and say, well, I mean, you're dirty, but just come on into the kingdom that way. No, we'll look over that. That's not what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit focuses in on the truth. The Holy Spirit says, you are filthy. He can make you clean. Come to him. See? This is, the, this is when, when we get down to it, he wants us to feel bad over our sin. God does want us to feel bad over our sin. People, we live in a day when people don't want to feel bad about anything, right? Allie's one of those. Allie told me this morning in Sunday school, she does not like it when she gets corrected, you know? Because sometimes she feels like those people are correcting her to make her feel bad, you know? Well, sometimes we need that correction. You see, we've talked about this before, even last week, I believe, that, that, that God, what God's looking for us to feel is not guilt. God's looking for us to feel sorrow. You see, the hopeless feeling that Satan focuses on is that you are guilty, you are useless, you are worthless, you are, there is no hope for you. That's the feeling Satan gives us. The feeling that God is giving us is the reality that you are in your sin. You, you, are, you should feel bad about that. You have rejected and rebelled the God of the universe. You are behaving in an unrighteous way, and you should feel bad about that. But the sorrow that he wants us to feel is sorrow that leads us to repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, it says, For godly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. By the same token, where if you're here today and God wants you to see your, to see your sin for what it is, if you are here today and you, are, you have experienced the forgiveness of God, God wants you to see that as well. You see, some people experience, they, they, they experience God's forgiveness. They come to God, they, they repent, they, they confess their sins before him and God forgives them. But they continue to carry around the idea of, but I did this. I mean, and, and they stay down in the mully grubs with that thing, forgetting that he forgives in a way that takes our sin and separates it from us as far as the east is from the west. It is no more. When you are forgiven, he wants you to see yourself as forgiven. That's what all of the New Testament epistles are about. This is who you are. You're a Christian, so behave like a Christian. Don't behave like the world. Behave like this is who you are. In 1 John 1, in verse 9, we have this assurance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an assurance. Do you see that? In that moment, in that, in that instance, back, go, back to, go back to that verse 4 where God comes to Joshua and he says, Behold, look, I have taken your iniquity from you. Don't, don't continue to live in the shame of that filth. Behold, I, I've taken it away. God's desire is that we live in the objective. Chris Whittle and I think have talked about this uh, not long ago. The idea that a prayer that I have started praying for myself and that I pray for other people is, God, I want, I want to see me like you see me. God, I pray that that person, like there are people in my life right now that I believe that God has told them everything's okay with you. 
and, and, and they're not a believer. They, don't, they have no relationship with Jesus, but they think that they're okay because they go to church or because they do a good thing or because they whatever, right? But my prayer for them is, God, I pray that they would see themselves like you see them. Do you understand how that's so objective? It's not in the, it's not in the realm of what they feel. I want them to see, I want me to see what God sees because I don't want to live in a delusion be bopping around thinking I am who I am when I'm not. I want to live in a world of self-awareness where I recognize and I see what God is seeing. That way I'm convicted of my sin in, an, in this appropriate way that brings me back with godly grief to repentance, right? And then that way I understand that when I'm forgiven, I'm totally forgiven, that that, that is no more. And that there may be consequences for my sin that extends around me, but that when it comes to me and him, we're good because he's forgiven me, and I don't live with that shame of that. The, the whole point of what's happening in this is that we know that God cannot tell a lie, and we know that Satan is the father of lies. And so if Satan wants us to live in the subjective world of our feelings, there's something deceptive going on there. God's desire is that we would, that we would see us as he sees us, as we really are. The whole point of the message today, if you, had to, if you had to press me down and say, David, what is the message about today? The message today is about Jesus Christ can deliver you from being guilty and from feeling guilty. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.